Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. So good to have Kerry with us uh, two weeks ago, wasn't it? And uh, he, he preached to us from the book of Acts, Acts 3, and I think he went into Acts 4. But I just want to pick up some of the story that he, he referred to, which is, of course, the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate. And Acts chapter 3, verse 15 um, we'll read from there. So this is, the, the man has been healed, and they've gone into the temple court. He's gone um, leaping and praising God into the temple court, and, and the crowd have gathered, and, and Peter's now addressing the crowd, second time he's done this in, in two chapters, addressing the crowd to try and give some explanation as to what's happened. And in verse 15, it says this. He says, You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. And we are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through him, through Jesus, has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, just as your leaders also did. But what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he's fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and so that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and he may send Jesus, who's been appointed Messiah, for you. Verse 21. Heaven must welcome him, or other versions say heaven, uh, heaven must receive him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. We'll just stop there. This year we've been considering the cross of Jesus and the crown of Jesus, and in these last few weeks of this year, been looking at aspects of the, the ultimate expression of Christ's crown, which is that he's coming back, the return of Jesus. And um, integral to everything the Bible says about the return of Jesus is this promise in Acts 3, 21, that he must stay in heaven, or he will stay in heaven until the times of the restoration of all things. In other words, there's a promise that Jesus, uh, at his return, or, or before his return, or before his return and at his return, in the return of Christ, will be the restoring of all things. Jesus won't come back. He must remain in heaven. Heaven must receive it until the time comes for God to restore everything. And I want us to consider what that means this morning, and particularly what it means that he is returning for a church that is restored. 
there's some, there's some concepts here that God, I believe, God wants to reform some of our thoughts this morning. Reform. The word that's used here, this word, the times of the restoration of all things. The word there for restoration is a word that means restitution. It means getting back what's been lost. It means, it means in biblical terms, it always means getting it back with some compensation. More than just what was lost, we receive back with compensation. It means the reestablishment, the reconstitution. It means the total transformation of everything. Things restored to their original condition so they can be, re- so they can be used for their original purpose and intention. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. Now, this verse says here, the times of the restoration the, recons- the reconstitution, the restitution, the reestablishment, the restating, the total transformation of all things. The transforming of all things, the restoring of all things. And that's needed because all things have been corrupted by sin. All things have been corrupted by sin. All authority has been corrupted by sin. All Order in the universe was corrupted by sin. Family life has been corrupted by sin. Society has been corrupted by sin. Culture has been corrupted by sin. The oceans have been corrupted because of sin. The jungles have been corrupted because of sin. The environment's been corrupted because of sin. Justice, equality, fairness, righteousness have all been corrupted because of sin. And a process of restoration has been underway ever since Lucifer's rebellion, ever since Adam's fall, a process of restoring has been underway, of putting things back together. In Colossians 1 verse 20, we we, we read this last week from the message, it says that all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things and animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. God restoring everything, bringing all those dislocated bits back together because of, the, because, of, because of the cross. Now just turn with me to 2 Peter and you'll see another, another phrase that's used to describe this, this restoring of all things. 2 Peter 3 verse 13. Could somebody, could somebody read this out? 2 Peter 3 13. If somebody else could read out Revelation 21 verse 1. You have to be nice, nice and loud. Probably stand up will be good. 2 Peter 3, 13. Okay, John. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. The home of righteousness. A new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse 1. Fran. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. So we'll come back to those things. A new heaven and a new earth. And the word, the word there for new, it means fresh, unused, new in quality, something that's not been seen before. It's a picture for us of what it will mean when the universe is restored. 
all things are restored. So Christ's return, this, this, this topic, this theme that we've been looking at for these last few weeks, Christ's return will signal and bring to completion a process that is already underway by which God will restore all things. Everything needs restoring, and the process is underway. The cross and the crown, that's what it was, that's what it was all about. And at the heart of this is the restoring of the church. When we say the restoring of the church, we're not, we don't read the book of Acts and say, well, wouldn't it be great to go back to, the, to those days? That wouldn't be good at all. It would be better that we went back to what God originally intended. And when we read, um, when we read of his mandate to Adam and Eve in the book of in Genesis 1, to this couple who were at that time untainted by sin, when we go back to God's original intention, we find that his, his, his desire for the church must be a body untainted by sin, fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, expressing his rule and his kingdom in all things. The church, the Bible tells us, is God's masterpiece. Isn't that wonderful? We've heard us say this before. Of all the things God created, we were in, uh, I was in Norway last week with uh, Kerry and, and other guys, and Chandrakamp was there from India. And um, he was about to go, and I, I don't know how he'll, how he'll cope with this. He might be there now. He was about to go from uh, Bergen, which is relatively south in Norway. He was going to a, a city called Tromsø, which is above the Arctic Circle, to see the northern lights. He was really excited. And they are stunning. I don't know how many people have seen the northern lights and will attest to how stunning and magnificent and beautiful. But, you know, the most beautiful thing God created was not the northern lights. It's the church. His masterpiece. And since he's going to use the church to display his wisdom to the principalities and powers, then it becomes clear that integral to to the restoration of all things must be the restoring of the church. In this present age, um, so often the church is immature and, and divided and compromised and weak and powerless and, and having its testimony blunted and, and suffering a major identity crisis. The New Testament describes a, a first century church which was, um, which was powerfully impacting its world in the aftermath of that first coming of Jesus. But what's needed in the 21st century is a church that's more powerfully impacting its world in the light of the second coming of Jesus. And it's impossible, it's absolutely impossible that Jesus will return for anything other than a radiant church. We'll come to that in just a moment. So what will this church, this restored church, that's part of the restoring of all things, what, what will it look like? I'd like us to consider four pictures that are in the Bible, four images. They're on the screen there and uh, just go back to the other one, would you? There's four images there. They're pictures. Um, and they help to answer the question, what will this look like? What will be involved? What's our role in it all? What's our part in this? And the first one is, you'll be familiar with all of these, but let's put them together and, and, and let God reform our thoughts. The first picture of what this restored church will be like is that she will be the bride of Christ. Amen. 
the bride of Christ. You know, the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. In, in Genesis, um, Adam is, is alongside his bride, who was taken from the rib that came out of his side. In Revelation, Jesus is alongside his bride, yes. who was created from the blood that flowed from his side. And everywhere in between, marriage is the divinely blessed, God-endorsed means of multiplication and fruitfulness and the foundation of secure society and the context for raising children and the way God deals with our aloneness. And the Bible says marriage should be honored by all. There's, There's statistics all the time, aren't there, of the of the physical and emotional and, and um, psychological blessings and benefits of marriage, of secure marriage. But above and beyond every benefit, every blessing of mar- that marriage bestows on mankind, its ultimate purpose is not for us, but for him. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. Turn with me to Ephesians. I know these are well known to many of us. Ephesians 5. It wasn't long ago that we, we paused for a while and talked about marriage and Biblical marriage, but Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, should love their wives of their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we're members of his body. For this reason, man, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's what he's been talking about, Christ. And his church. Biblical marriage of of one man and one woman with one lifelong covenant really matters because no other union can ever express the relationship between Christ and his church. There will never be any other God-endorsed alternative. In the Old Testament, God's covenant with Israel is described in, as a marriage. And Israel are unfaithful or adulterous, and God is jealous for their love. And then in the Gospels, Jesus comes, and, and he describes himself as the bridegroom. And then you find in the epistles, Paul says, I've, I've promised the Corinthian church, I've promised you to Christ. I've betrothed you. You're engaged to him. And then in Revelation, and we'll turn there now, Revelation John has a, catches a glimpse of our great destiny. Revelation 19. (laughs) 
Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard something like the... John is, John's having a vision. John is caught up in the Spirit. He says, Then I heard something like, like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah! Because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad and, and rejoice and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has prepared herself, and she was permitted to wear fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous act of the saints. And then he said to me, right blessed are those who are, who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Revelation 21. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then just look at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and he spoke to me, come and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Jesus will not return to rescue a downtrodden remnant. He is coming back to be joined in glorious union with a radiant bride. I think there are some implications of that for us. The first is we've got to get ready. In Matthew 25, we read these verses a few weeks ago, Jesus is, is talking in, in, in parables. He, he describes those, those ten virgins getting ready for the wedding, but, but some of them are not ready when the groom returns. We must get ready. We must get the house in order. And then we must get passionate because Jesus really loves us and he wants us to be passionate in return. We're to have no other affections. He loves us. We're to love him. We're to have a pure devotion to Jesus and let, let nothing corrupt or compromise that. Just turn back with me to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to get you to flick around a bit here. 2 Corinthians 11. This is the verse I mentioned just now, where Paul writes, and he says, I wish, you would, I wish you'd put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with it. Do put up with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I've promised you in marriage to one husband to present you a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be corrupted from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. A complete and pure devotion to Christ. It's what the apostle is after. Complete devotion to Christ. Pure devotion to Christ. It means, folks, it means saving ourselves for him. Saving ourselves for Jesus. Wow. However long we have to wait, we save ourselves for him because, because we're, we're gripped with the desire for pure, passionate devotion to him. Amen. It means we show some passion. We don't allow drifting and backsliding and compromise and lukewarmness, but we show some passion for Jesus. Amen. It means we get clean. 
Because although we read in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is taking the initiative in presenting us radiant, without spot, wrinkle or blemish, but pure and holy, Revelation 19 that we just looked at said, says he saw a bride who'd made herself ready. So Jesus is taking the initiative in cleaning us up, in dealing with spot and wrinkle and blemish, but he wants to see a bride who also avails herself of all of that and makes herself ready. We make ourselves ready. And I guess what it means is this. He's dealt with the roots of all the issues. He's done everything necessary. He's dealt with the roots. But now we must deal with all the superficial things. He's dealt with sin. He's dealt with sin. He's cut sin off at the root. He's dealt with the heart condition. But now he says, now deal with the sins. Deal with the fruit of those things. Deal with, deal with any remnants of, 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 of those things that I've already dealt with the roots of for you. Spots, wrinkles, blemishes, little things that matter, our daily disciplines, our our stray thoughts, our unguarded tongue, our sinful habits, our bad habits, our laziness, our our not taking care of our bodies, our broken relationships. He says, deal with all the spots, all the wrinkles, all the blemishes. We've got to look different to the world, folks, haven't we? He's coming for a pure bride. And I think the other thing that this image, this picture of a bride says to me, if you go right towards, almost to the very end of your Bible, just before the glossary or the index or the concordance, on that very last page, verse 17 of the last chapter. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Anyone who hears should say, come. And the one who's thirsty should come. And whoever desires should take the living water as a gift. I think as well as being ready and being passionate and and being clean, we've got to be out there. A bride filled with the spirit who's inviting the world to come. I, I really want to encourage us, church, to... Make these days of invitation. We can say to people, come. Come and drink. Probably wouldn't use that phrase. Probably wouldn't use those words. They wouldn't make a lot of sense. But, but you know what I'm saying. You, you spot thirst in people. Say, come. Come and drink. Come to Jesus. So as the return of Jesus draws near, the church that's being restored will be a pure bride. And we'll be waiting with great passion, great expectation and serious about saving ourselves for him and serious about preparing ourselves for him when he comes. All right? That's an image we're quite familiar with. Here's another one. The city of God. Go back with me, please, to Revelation 21 again. The city of God. John's vision of the end times here in the book of Revelation includes a description of of this restored church in all her glory, or perhaps we should say in all his glory, and he describes this church as a city. So let's read again. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea existed no longer. And I also saw the holy city, The holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, 
adorned for her husband. And then verse 9. And then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, come and I'll show you the bride, the lamb, the wife of the lamb. Okay, so, so notice carefully these two images are getting completely intertwined here. He sees the holy city like a bride. The angel says, come, I'm going to show you the bride. And then verse 10, he then carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. And her radiance was like a very... So, okay, folks, we're, we're in here now to a vision of the people of God, of the bride of Christ. This can be nothing other than the church. This new Jerusalem is the church. This is the bride. The angel made that quite clear. I'm I'm going to show you the bride. Come, look at the city. Coming down out of heaven like a new Jerusalem. And this is what he sees. Try and and let these images wash into us and reform. Arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates, and on the gates, names were inscribed, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names, the twelve names of the Lamb's twelve apostles. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls, and the city's laid out in a square, and its length and its width are the same. And he measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, its width, and its height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which the angel used. That was good of the angel, wasn't it? He's, He's trying to get humans to see something here. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And the foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. There's a list of them. And the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. And the broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I didn't see a sanctuary in it, a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. And they'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing profane will ever enter it and no one who does what's vile or false but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a a stunning image and picture. And it's a vision. It's not to be taken literally, but it does tell us some real things. First, it is spectacularly bright. All those images of glory and light, and and, and there's no night there, and, and the throne is in the city, and there's no sun or moon because God's glory illuminates everything. In fact, you know, it's one of those situations, if there was any other lights, you wouldn't even see them. 
It's like you can't see the moon when the sun's out. A brighter light has appeared. And here in the city, God's glory. Here in the city, which is the bride, which is the church, God's glory is so immense and powerful that no other light is either needed or could even be seen. It's spectacularly bright. I love the fact that the kings of the earth bring all their glory into it. Everything is subsumed in this glorious city of God, this glorious bride of Christ, this glorious restored church. And then it's superbly built with a massive high wall and 12 gates which represent the 12 tribes which represent all God's Old Testament people. And 12 foundations foundations upon which are the names of the Lamb's 12 apostles, which represents all God's New Testament people. In other words, in this city, there is space and security for all God's people. And prior to Christ's return, we expect a humongous ingathering of Jews, of Gentiles, of all of God's people. A huge ingathering. Which leads me to the next bit. This, this city is spectacularly bright, is superbly built, and is sensationally big. Did you catch that measurement? 12,000 stadia. Long, wide, and high. I can't deal with the cubic bit. But, but that floor space is, is about... Two and a half thousand kilometers by two and a half thousand, 2.2, I think. 2.2. The, the, the land mass, it's a vision. I'm not taking it literally, but I just want to show you something. The land mass described in this vision is bigger than India, way bigger than the UK. The UK is, is 0.2 million square kilometers. This is 4.8 million square kilometers, kilometers square millions. It's got a little two in so. It's about half the size of Europe, half the size of all of Europe. And I'm not taking it literally. I'm not getting into that. But what I'm saying is this, it's big. It's a city. It's a city, and it goes up. It's a city that is described, and I'm not taking it literally. Don't, don't go down that little rabbit warren. But what I'm saying is, if there's one thing this vision is meant to be telling us, this city is big. Yeah. Big enough for billions of people to be in it. Yeah. He's trying to give us a sense of its vastness. And he uses a human measurement to do that. And it's stunningly beautiful. It's built with all these precious stones and, and nothing profane or vile or false will enter it. And the psalmists, you know, they, the psalmists describe the beauty of, of earthly Jerusalem. It's nothing compared with this new Jerusalem. Gold, transparent gold and glass and jaspers and sapphires. And I've never even heard of chalcedony, sardonyx. I don't think Deborah's got any of those in her, in her box at home. She's working on it. John is describing the church now, and he's using an image of a city. And he's trying to give us some different dimensions and different things to, or the Spirit is trying to give us other ways of describing this. But you know, it doesn't end there. 
as well as being spectacularly bright and superbly built and sensationally big and stunningly beautiful, this city is also a carrier of supernatural blessing into the world. Have a look what John goes on to see in chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and down the middle of the broad street of the city, and on both sides of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there'll no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and he goes on to describe some more things. In this city is this river, and it flows from the city. And what John is seeing in his vision, as I'm sure many of you will appreciate, is, is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and of Ezekiel's vision, where he sees all those trees at the side of the river. And indeed, a fulfillment of everything that Eden could have been. As Jesus gets ready to return, the church that he's restoring knows that it's part of a holy city, born from above, radiant with his presence, destined to be inhabited, I believe, by billions, a source of blessing and healing for the nations. And you know what, folks? That's where our citizenship is. We may be residing on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, the city from above. Ready for a third image? The temple of God. Now, throughout the Bible, there's, there's so much we can say about all of these things, but, but we mustn't. Throughout the Bible, the temple always speaks of God's presence. And the restored church is the ultimate expression of that. In the Old Testament, uh, do you remember the stories of the, of the building of the tabernacle? That was the, temp, you know, the tent-like structure that went with them as they traveled through uh, on their wanderings, the tabernacle. What happened when the tabernacle was finished? When they finished building... First of all, how was the tabernacle built? According... There's a phrase, isn't there? According to the pattern. When you read about the tabernacle being built you find over and over again it was built according to the pattern that God had shown Moses. And when the tabernacle was finished, do you remember what happened? What happened, Steph? The weight of glory came, up, came and filled the tabernacle. God, 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 um, God came when the tabernacle was finished. When the tabernacle had been built according to the pattern he'd decreed, which, by the way, um, just endorses the importance of, of attention to detail. The detail of this tabernacle. Unbelievable. Now, when the temple was built, once, once they'd settled in Jerusalem, David always had it in his heart to build a permanent house for the Lord. But God said, it's not for you to build. You, you have blood on your hands. It's for your son Solomon to build. When Solomon finished the temple, according to the pattern... God showed David and himself what happened. 
the glory came. The presence of God came to fill these shadows of what God always had in his heart. When, um, when the temple had been built and after the, the Lord came and, came, and, came and presenced himself in the temple, when the, uh, when the people of God were sent into exile, it says that the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. God's people, because of their sin, went into exile. God's glory departed from over the temple. But there was always a prophetic vision of a new temple that would, be, uh, that, would, that, would, that would once again see the glory of God come to it. Yeah. When those exiles came back from their exile and they rebuilt the temple, which you read about in, in Haggai, it's obvious that what they rebuilt was not the fulfillment of that prophecy because, because they said it doesn't look anything like the old one did. Yeah. It wasn't as good as even Solomon's temple. But again, there is a prophecy. If you just turn to Haggai right towards the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, uh, and then you've got um, Malachi, and then you've got the New Testament. So it's the third book back. Look at this. This is, this is a little bit technical, but it's really important. Haggai chapter 2. Let's just pick it up at um, verse 3. So they've come back to rebuild the temple. These, these exiles have come back from their exile. They're going to try and rebuild Solomon's temple in, in Jerusalem. Verse 3. Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? Even so, be strong. Be strong. Be strong, all the people of the Lord, and work for I'm with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. Verse 6. For the Lord of hosts says this. Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I'll shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God makes this promise. It's not this temple they've built, but there's a promise. God will fill his house with glory. When Jesus came, it says he, he, um, he made his home amongst us. In John 1.14, it says Jesus came and he made his home, or some of the older versions used, used the, the word, he tabernacled amongst us. Jesus came and, and he became a tabernacle, a dwelling of God, the presence of God is with men. But Jesus looked at that temple they'd rebuilt, and he says, do you know what? Um, not one stone will be left on another. It will all be destroyed. And it was. That, that was fulfilled in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But folks, everything was right on track. Everything was right on track. The prophetic visions were right on track because the temple that the prophets had seen was never a man-made temple. The fulfillment of those prophecies was never a natural fulfillment but a spiritual fulfillment.
God never intended to dwell in a man-made temple. Acts 17 and Acts 7 make that perfectly clear. The temple he'd planned was a spiritual house constructed with living stones and with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. That's the temple he, the prophets in their glimpses begun to see. Acts 7 makes it very clear that what house could be built for me, says the Lord. No, no house could contain him. God has no interest in our man-made temples. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. We are the temple of the living God. It's another picture of the restored church. 1 Corinthians 3 verse um, 16 uh, to... Hang on, one Corinthians, I'm in 2 Corinthians. That's why that doesn't look like it fits. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Could somebody read, read uh, verses 16 and 17, actually? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Okay, it's pretty clear, isn't it? You are God's temple. Now have a look at 2 Corinthians 6. Sixteen. Could again, could somebody read this? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. And Ephesians 2. The Apostle Paul is describing the church as the temple of the living God. In Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says, So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you're members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together and is growing into a holy sanctuary or holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This restored church is being built according to the pattern that God has given and, is, and when it's dedicated to Him and it's filled with His glorious presence, we'll find all these visions, all these images, all these prophetic pictures are fulfilled. God's dwelling is, is with men and he will live with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Revelation 21. And then you go on to the next verse. It says this is what the consequences of that will be. The old order of things will pass away. There'll be no more tears or crying or death or pain because this restored church will enjoy the presence of God God dwelling amongst us. Ephesians says we're being built together to become the dwelling place of the Spirit. The Spirit is living on the earth. In 2017, dwelling in His church. 
the dwelling place of the Spirit, not only, will, not only is the church a haven of health, and to be a haven of health, and to be a haven of peace and wholeness, but is to be an expression of a whole new order. Yeah. Everything different, everything changed. And the pattern really matters. Steph got quite excited. Yeah. We talked about the pattern. Yeah. God has set a pattern. There is a pattern. You know, there's a pattern for the way God wants his church built. And I'll come on to that maybe in a little bit more, bit more detail in just a moment. But, but we cannot discard or ignore what God has said about the way his house is to be built. Yeah. We set deacons in the other week. And, and, and some people said, well, they're already members of staff. But, you know, member of staff is not, is not the biblical pattern. Some of, those, some of those people were staff members. The biblical pattern is elders and deacons. The biblical pattern is apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, not bishops and supervisors and presbyters and all other manner of, of, of descriptions. God set a pattern. The biblical pattern for coming into the church is repentance and faith and baptism in water and baptism in the Spirit. We're not born into the church. We're not born as Christians. We have to come come into the church God's way, the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is, is a body where every part of the body has a function. The biblical pattern is not 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. The biblical pattern is a body. The pattern really matters. And if we build according to the pattern, God fills his house with his glory. Isaiah has a vision in, in chapter 2, and he says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Yeah. It's another vision. It's another picture to help us to understand that as the return of Christ draws ever closer, the church that's being restored will be a place of his abiding presence. Yeah the dwelling place of the Spirit. And as God lifts us up, all nations will stream to us. We've got to be expecting that, folks. It's not just, these are not just visionary things, they're real things. The last image, let's finish with this one. It's one of the most exciting words I know of in the Bible. And it's that word, fullness. And the word used, it's worth just making note of this, is pleroma, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, P-L-E-R-O-M-A, pleroma. It's a great word. It means um, completeness or full measure, abundance, perfection, entirety. It means something that's dense, thick, dense, fully pressed, really pressed down, fullness, thickness, abundance, completeness, perfection. And one of the most exciting truths about the restored church is that the fullness of Christ. In Colossians, you find this, this, thing, this point comes through that, that in Christ is all the fullness of God. Okay? All of God. How much, how much is all of God? All of God is in Christ. 
God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. It's just a stunning thought, isn't it? But when you get into Ephesians, you find that all of God in Christ is in the church. So let's just, let's just so you know I'm, so you know I'm telling the truth. Ephesians 1, 22. And he put everything under his feet. And he appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who, think, who fills all things in every way. Ephesians 3, verse 18. So that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled. Is that really what it says there? So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? What does that even mean? (laughs) Ephesians 4 verse 11 And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son and we grow into a mature man. This is the church. We grow into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, like these other images, let me just finish with these little thoughts. All these images are, on on the one hand, they're all true already. All these things are true already. That is the truth. On the other hand, um, they will all be true when Christ returns. And on the third hand, We're in a process in which what is already true in in position and will be true in all its fullness and expression when Christ returns, nevertheless, we're in a process in which all of these things are becoming true, are becoming experienced here and now. We're becoming more and more ready as a bride. We're becoming more and more built as a city. We're becoming more and more raised up as a temple and we're becoming increasingly filled with all the fullness of God that we're already filled with. I don't really know what it means other than to say these few things. Everything Jesus was filled with, we're filled with. He was filled with grace and truth. He was filled with power and authority. He was filled with wisdom. He was filled with faith. He was filled with peace. All of those things can be ours. It means that if Christ fills all things, there's no space for anything else. There's no space for any um, selfish ambition or jealousy or pride or worldliness or any baggage or any unbiblical practices we dragged in from our old lives. There's no space for any of those because Christ fills all things. It means the body works with ease, as Sharon described at the Momentum Weekend. The body works with ease because we make space for Christ to fill all things. 
It means there's unity and there's harmony. There's, there's a mature man, there's stature. There's this, there's this truth. He must increase. We must decrease. Christ fills all things. And it, and it means this. It means we can meet him here in all his fullness. It means every member of this church, every visitor to this church can find Jesus here. All of Jesus is in his church. All of Christ is in his church. Just have, folks, have a look around the room properly, without embarrassment. Have a good look around. All of Jesus is in his church. His all-sufficiency is here. All his power is here. All his, all his promises are here. All his knowledge is here. All his foresight is here. All of Jesus is in his church, and he's all-sufficient for you and I today. He's all-sufficient for our region. All of Jesus is here. When Christ fills his church... There's always an overflow. Book of Acts tells us that tells us on the day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Spirit and filled the believers. There was an overflow. In that city, there's a river that's flowing, carrying life, carrying healing, carrying fruit every month, constantly bearing fruit, constantly delivering healing to the nations. When Christ fills his church, there's always an overflow. And what that means for one of the Some of what it means for me is this. It means gifted men and women rise up to fill places of power and influence in society. It means spirit-filled believers saturate their communities and their workplaces. And they express faith and hope and love. And Jesus is flowing out from us. It means ministries will be sent from here. It means we will plant out into other counties. Richard mentioned earlier, we will plant out into Warwickshire and Northamptonshire. There's an overflow. Christ is filling his church to overflow. It means there's a vast army of believers on the offensive, tearing down strongholds which are ruining lives and lifting up the downtrodden and confronting injustices and speaking up for what's right and good and setting an example and living as an alternative society. That, that city that's coming down wow. is a new community in the communities. Yeah. An alternative society, an alternative culture. Oh, we're not here to blend in with the world, thinking we'll win the world better that way. We're here to be an alternative statement. Amen. Flowing out. Whoa. The life, the fullness of Christ yeah. flowing out from his church. Yeah. And as Jesus' return gets ever closer. It's closer now than it was when I started speaking 25 minutes ago. As Jesus' return draws nearer, Jesus is restoring and building his church, and our only goal is to be filled with the fullness of him, isn't it? We've got to embrace God's pattern for the leadership in the church and his pattern for the leadership from the church. Wow, if, if, if Sadie Batstone was getting royalties for how many times people said they, they loved hearing Sadie, they loved hearing Janet, they loved hearing about the leadership from the church into the community. 
That's God's pattern. This restored church, folks, is, is a beautiful bride. Beautiful bride making herself ready, dealing with spot and wrinkle and blemish, saying, thank you, Jesus, you've dealt with the root of everything. Let me keep the surface pure, holy. This restored church is a vast, vast city being built from above. Is a dynamic temple filled with his spirit. Is a complete expression of all the fullness of Christ. Kerry said we're to raise our expectations. Oh boy. Let's raise our expectations. You know, in, in, in Acts 1, verse 6, the disciples, they've, they've not been baptized in the Spirit and Jesus hasn't ascended yet. And they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, thinking earthly. They're thinking natural. Uh, they're thinking of Jesus um, performing some, something to restore a kingdom to Israel. Jesus sort of uh, never really answers, answers the question. He ascends to heaven. He baptizes them in the Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, it seems that little question has long been forgotten. Peter now filled with the Spirit. Jesus on high. And Peter says, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. All things. Let's consider these features of this church. Let's evaluate everything everywhere we find ourselves. Let's line everything up now with what it must be like then. Because as we give ourselves to that, this process of, 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 of everything being restored, you know and I know we will see the greatest in gathering. A nation can be born in a day. Everything can be ready for the return of Christ in our lifetimes. It's absolutely, utterly possible. With God, all things are possible. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do next week, folks, is um, we're going to break bread together, and um, we'd love to hear from you what's been, what's been stirring in you as we've talked about the return of Christ. Just love, you, love people to come ready to share some, just some short testimonies some short reflections of, of what this means practically. Because it, it could just be so up there, couldn't it? And try as we might, it has to come down to earth. So next week when we meet, um, here and in Tamworth, and, and we'll do the same in Harbour, we just want to encourage people to come ready to share reflections and testimonies, really practical things. What are you going to do about what we've been seeing in the Word? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you next week at work? What does all this talk of the return of Christ actually mean for us? All right? Should we just stand to our feet, church, and let's just... Uh... I do believe there's, an, there's that invitation. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Coming to Jesus, evaluating ourselves as we've been encouraged... And uh, coming to his church, finding a home, having our expectations raised.
And so, Lord, we stand before you this morning and thank you for your invitation to come. For all who are thirsty, to come. I want to pray, Lord, that across this room there'll be universal response to say yes and amen. We come to you, Jesus. We come to your church. We thank you for what you're building and changing and restoring. We thank you for the pattern that you've set. And we want to give ourselves fully for the thrilling destiny you have for us, Lord. Lord, as we seed the nation and the nations, as we send men and women, as we plant out around this place, as we, as we see centres emerging in Warwickshire, in Northamptonshire, in Nottinghamshire, in Kenya and other nations, Lord, in and around Tamworth, in and around Market Harbour, in and around Colville, Lord, in and around this central location, Lord, we say thank you for what you're expressing in this place. And we say yes to your invitation to come to you, Lord Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.